0: is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler and today is our third and final episode about the series You. So this is the final episode where I will be going over season three of the show. Um, I'm going to follow the same format that I have in the past two episodes, which if you haven't had a chance to listen to, um, I recommend that you go back and listen to those as some of the themes we talk about track throughout uh, each of the seasons. Um, Again, up front, just a reminder that there are major spoilers for season three if you haven't finished it or watched it yet, um, and content warning for suicide uh, and our Intimate partner violence, drug use, sexual content, all that good stuff. Um, I think specifically the intimate partner violence and suicide is some of the more shocking content in this season, and I will be kind of discussing those topics, so if those are sensitive topics for you, again, just a warning um, that those are coming up, and you may want to skip this episode if that's difficult for you to hear about. So, diving in... As per usual, um, I'm going to give a rundown of the characters, go through a synopsis of the season, and then talk about some of the themes and analysis that I noticed in Season 3. And I think this season is really fun to go through because we are seeing a lot of these running threads tie up. We get to know a lot more about Joe's background to kind of help us establish the patterns that we've been talking about. Um, And personally, I think that Joe and Love's relationship is more interesting than Joe and Beck's relationship or his past relationships. So I I really had a a good time watching this series. So let's talk about the characters. Of course, Joe Goldberg, our main character, our unreliable narrator, as we've talked about before, uh, features heavily in the show. We are still following him through. And again, he is narrating the majority of the show. Uh, Then we have Love, Goldberg Quinn, so they, they hyphenated their name. Love and Joe have got married at the end of season two. They hyphenated their name, so they're the Goldberg Quins. Uh, so Love, she's married to Joe now, and at the beginning of season three, she's a new mother. They've just had a baby, um, and she is adjusting to a new life and a new place. Um, Henry is Love and Joe's child. He is an infant for much, much of the season, um, but he's Henry really does serve to highlight for us some of the things that come up for Joe and Love now that they are parents. Um, But, you know, Henry himself doesn't do much as he is just a baby in the show. Um, Then we have Dottie, who is Love's mother, uh, who is going through a divorce from Love's father and is helping to raise Henry. And one thing that comes up is that Dottie refers to Henry as Forty, which if you'll remember from season two, Forty was Love's twin brother who was killed at the end of season two and is no longer with us. And so Dottie referring to Henry as Forty kind of cements this idea that Love and Dottie have that Forty was reincarnated into Love's child, um, which sets up some tension between joe love and love's mother um because joe didn't like 40 and he thinks that love had too much of a relationship with 40 even though it's like they were twins so whatever joe um but that's just kind of something that will come up throughout the show um is is them calling henry a different name and it's because of this idea that that they believe 40 has been reincarnated um Next we have Carrie and Sherry who are neighbors of the Goldberg Quins. Carrie is a fitness guy and Sherry is a mommy blogger in the neighborhood. These characters kind of represent the stereotypes of the area. Um, So, oh, just to kind of center this, the, the first season took place in New York, second season took place in LA, and this season takes place in a town called Madre Linda, which is in Marin County. So a lot of the plot centers around these stereotypes about the area, um, which is known for, if you're not from California, uh, because Marin County is in Northern California, it, it's, it's a wealthy area. Uh, some the, the anti-vax movement is really big in Marin. It's kind of known for being a place where, like, like hippy liberal parents go to raise their children, so they're really into things like um, you know, like organic smoothies and fad diets and these types of sort of new agey wellness things. But there also is a pretty strong, not necessarily a conservative streak, but there are some some very interesting uh, ideas, uh, particularly because so many people in this in this area own property and are quite wealthy. There's some some Interesting political ideas, such as being like anti-vaccine, um, or you know, like very concerned with with school school stuff, right? Like make sure your kids go to the best school. So Sherry and Carrie, I think, represent these stereotypes to a T. Um, and there there are other neighbors that that play a role in um, the the season and or are you know supporting characters, but I think Carrie and Sherry are kind of the epitome of, of what this show is pointing at or p- poking fun at ab- about the area. Um, we also have Theo. So he's the 19-year-old stepson of Joe and Love's next-door neighbor. He eventually becomes romantically entangled with love and becomes a bit obsessed with her. So that's a, a subplot we'll be talking about. Theo and Love's relationship. Um, his stepmother, Natalie. So it, it, Theo has an interesting relationship. So... His mother was married to his stepfather, and they got divorced. And she didn't want anything to do with him, so his stepfather raises him. Uh, but then his stepfather remarries, so Natalie is his s- stepfather's wife. <laughs> I don't know if, <laughs> if that's like a confusing. It is. It is confusing. Um, but so Natalie is Theo's essentially stepmom, um, and she she is the next door neighbor. Obviously, of Joe in love, and she actually becomes romantically entangled with Joe, and she is a real estate agent, which will play a role later on in the show. Um, then we also, and, and Natalie's husband also lives there with her. His name is Matthew, and He will eventually play a role in the show, but the first few episodes, he's kind of seen as like this absentee figure. He's a workaholic, he's never home, and when he is, he's he's working, and so we see Natalie presented as kind of a neglected wife. Um, So those are the next door neighbor for Joe and Love. Then we have Marianne. She is the head librarian at the public library where Joe eventually gets a job. She becomes romantically entangled with Joe as well. And uh, Marianne has a child and an ex-husband who kind of get wrapped into her her plot line. Um, And one of Marianne's backstories is that she struggled with addiction and is trying to remain sober and that has created conflict in her ability to maintain custody of her child and so there's a lot of contentious um, divorce and custody battles going on between Marianne and her ex-husband. And then there's Gil, who's another one of the neighbors. He's kind of a community member who is seen as this kind of like dopey, go with the flow, um, not an unassuming kind of guy and quite honestly the most defining feature of kill is that he has unvaccinated children and we will see why that is so important in one of the later episodes so again this is kind of our main cast of characters there are other characters who do uh, play a role in the show, they are more minor, um, and of course if you're interested in some of the plots or characters I'm not able to get into, I encourage you to watch the show because it is very good. It's very interesting, which is why I have spent like five hours talking about it and many more hours researching and watching the show. Um, Okay, so let's do a little synopsis of season three. First episode really establishes Love and Joe in their new life and in their new environment. We see them struggling with raising a newborn son, and that their relationship is becoming strained, they're not intimate with each other, uh, not spending as much time with each other as they were before Henry was born, um, and, and Joe seems unable to bond with Henry. Henry will cry when Joe holds him, he seems to be always fussy or difficult around Joe, um, and Joe through his narration, we realize that he's just not feeling like a connection or a, or a sense of love toward Henry. So that that kind of sets up the first few episodes that Joe is, is really struggling with fatherhood. And I will say, I, I found this to be really interesting that they, because we follow Joe through the show, when we hear his narration, we're kind of getting his perspective on, on parenthood. Um, and I think that there could have been maybe some differentiation here, uh, between like Joe's more antisocial tendencies or you know he does bad things he's kind of a bad person differentiating that from just like the difficulty of, of, of new parenthood particularly for maybe the parent that did not if, if it's a biological child right the parent that did not give birth um, and I, I think that that is an important representation to have of that you know, new parents may not necessarily always feel like they're clicking with their child, um, particularly if they have a history of maybe childhood abuse or neglect, that, that it can be very difficult and that, and that it can be possible to not have that kind of instantaneous connection with a child. And, you know, not necessarily for any fault of the parent, but that this is just a reality for, for some new parents. Um, and something to, to adapt to and, and to be kind of normalized. But I think it becomes difficult to normalize this experience because we are seeing it happen to Joe, who over the last two seasons has been shown to be someone who has very violent tendencies, antisocial tendencies, does not seem to have much regard for other people's well-being or concern for their needs, if they're not directly connected to him or what he's pursuing, so I think it can it look like maybe a, a side effect of Joe's antisocial tendencies or you know his personality or whatever. So I, I I think it is interesting to have this kind of representation, but it may not be the best representation of this experience for people who are struggling to connect with their child because Joe is such a difficult character. Um, but again, something that I think was interesting, and it was made very clear that Joe was expecting to have a daughter, and instead Henry was born, and that is he attributes that to why he has difficulty connecting to Henry, is because he wanted a little girl to protect, obviously related to his mommy issues, um, but he, he's having trouble imagining himself as a father of a boy, because he associates men and boys as being, like, difficult, dangerous, bad people. Um, and he says this, like in his narration we hear him say this, um, and that's part of why he has difficulty connecting with Henry. But anyway, I just kind of throw that out there to say that if you are a new parent, or uh, if this was your experience uh, as a parent, that I do think it is very normal, and it is understandable, particularly if you were not the parent that or the person that gave birth to the child and aren't getting the like little boost from like some naturally occurring processes that help with this situation it is very normal and does not mean that you are like Joe and a serial killer it's that is like a separate thing from whatever is going on with Joe Um, so in this Adjustment of Joe and love adjusting to being parents living in a new neighborhood Um, Joe becomes of course infatuated with the next-door neighbor, Natalie um, And sort of begins the process that he normally begins where he you know he is stalking her he Steals her underwear. He you know does all these He does all these behaviors we've seen before and again a theme throughout this, the different seasons has been that the first episode ha- gives us a glimpse of like Joe being normal, or Joe being able to like be in a healthy relationship, or act in an appropriate way toward other people, and so it's set up at the beginning of like Joe is being a dutiful father and a dutiful husband, and he's doing what he needs to do to protect his family, but then we have that veer to the right where he sees Natalie and becomes infatuated with her and instantly obsessed with her. Um, As he pursues Natalie, Love is trying to fit in with the neighborhood, which is where she meets Sherry. Um, Natalie, as she is, you know, kind of abandoned by her husband and feeling a little neglected in her own relationship, notices that Joe is interested in him and invites him over. Their flirtation kind of continues and eventually she kisses him. And invites him to have sex with her, uh, which he declines. And he goes home to have sex with wa- with his wife, Love, for the first time in several months. So we see him trying to fight his impulses, but he's having difficulty with it. But ultimately, in this uh, first episode, we see that he is kind of able to overcome um, his impulse to move on from Love to... Uh, Natalie. Um, shortly after this event, they go to a party in the neighborhood hosted by Sherry, where Love overhears Sherry gossiping about the death of Forty, and Love becomes like enraged, and uh, actually has an interaction with Natalie, where Natalie tells her like, "Hey, listen, this is what the neighborhood is like. You either have to play their game or just like be above the game." And so Natalie or Love. Strikes up kind of a friendly conversation with Natalie finds out Natalie is a real estate agent and and tells Natalie that she wants to open a bakery. So she arranges to meet with Natalie um, at a property that a commercial property that love is interested in buying. However, at this point, love has figured out that Joe is interested in Natalie, and she finds that Joe had kept he, Joe had confessed to, having uh, a little crush on Natalie, but said it was over. But Love had found his box of paraphernalia, which included Natalie's underwear. Um, So when Love and Natalie are alone in the basement of the bakery, Love hits her in the head with an axe and murders Natalie. So again, following the structure of the first, first episode of the other two seasons... Everything is going fine, and then somebody snaps. Although this time, because we established at the end of season two that love does the same things that Joe does, it shift. Our attention kind of shifts to love, and we see that love is the one who's having difficulty with her old patterns. And love's pattern is that she kills people who get in the way of the person she loves, or who she sees as a threat to the the people that she loves. And in this case, Joe has become kind of her. Her primary person, especially now that Forty is dead. So that episode ends with (laughs) Love doing a murder. Um, We pick back up in the next episode where we see that Love and Joe are attempting to deal with Natalie's body and kind of hide their crime. And one thing that has played a role across all the seasons is the use of technology. And we've talked about this before, right, where Joe uses technology to stalk his victims. Um... Or to you know to gather information about them um, but in in this season they kind of focus on technology as being all around them and being a obstacle or something that makes it more difficult for Love and Joe to do what they normally do and one of the reasons this comes up is that Madre Linda is in like Silicon Valley it's like in the in the tech bro realm right so tech is everywhere everyone has a video doorbell um, there's even this whole plot line that Matthew, Natalie's husband, um, creates this ring that people wear that like measures all this biological data so they would know when Natalie died. Um, so, so throughout this thing they, they have to deal with a lot more technological considerations than we had to deal with in the previous seasons, and technology is used as a device in this season not just to assist Joe in his crimes (laughs) but in something that um is kind of actively working against him and I did like that the show took this approach in season three because I think one of the things that feels maybe a little unrealistic and I know it's a fictional show but one of the things that feels a little unrealistic about the show is that Joe and Love seem to get away with a lot without anyone noticing. and, you know, there, there there have been considerations in past seasons where, like, Joe will update people's social media posts or social media platforms from their phones after he kills them so that it looks like they were alive for longer. Um, but things like security cameras um, aren't necessarily addressed or the fact that people around them have surveillance technology that would make it more difficult to hide your nefarious crimes um so i i I like that it was treated in this different way and i think it is an interesting consideration um and raises the stakes because as each season goes along we need higher and higher stakes to i guess stay interested right like if if joe was doing the same things he did in season one same not that the stakes of like killing people are low um but you know what i mean like to keep our interest moving from season to season we kind of need to see things get more complicated or get more complex adding on to them um, which is why I'm not sure what season four is going to be about because it seems already like this this season already had a lot to deal with um, but I digress, we'll, we'll talk about that when season four comes out um, so anyway Joe and Love are working on getting rid of Natalie's body and kind of covering up all these technological um, pieces of evidence that would pin the, the murder on Love. At the same time, Love and Joe are going to couples counseling to address issues in their marriage and they are talking about the situation with Natalie without talking about the situation with Natalie. Now, interestingly enough, if Joe and Love were to tell their therapist that they had killed Natalie, there is no mandate for that therapist to break confidentiality and tell anyone. If a murder has happened in the past, someone has been harmed in the past, someone who's not a child, let me make that clear, if an adult, a person over the age of 18 but under the age of 65 and who is not dependent on someone for their care, so narrowing down who who could be murdered, uh, if someone within that category has been killed in the past, there is really not anything for this therapist to do. She she actually would be violating confidentiality if she were to tell the police um, that Joe and Love had killed Natalie, or that Love had killed Natalie. So technically, they could have talked about, they could have really talked about Natalie in the context of this therapy session um, without... Uh, fear of their therapist telling anyone. Now, I think they, for one, they it's more interesting to have them not be explicit about Natalie and kind of talk about the murder in a way that projects or highlights how their relationship works. I think that is more interesting as a viewer. Um, but it also, I think, is. It, would kind of be an irresponsible representation of therapy to be like, oh yeah, we're talking about murders left and right and there's no consequences. Because there could be consequences, especially, like I said, if it depends on the the categories of person who have been harmed. Um, Now, if Joe and Love were attending therapy and one of them said, oh, I'm going to kill so-and-so for sleeping with my husband, then the therapist would have to warn that person because that's considered a plan, um, a plan for homicidal ideation or homicidal intent, and so the therapist would then have to break confidentiality to let the uh, person they plan to kill know and to alert the proper authorities, but that's just a little um, therapy (laughs) nugget I thought we could pull out of um, this episode that that I think is it's kind of interesting how they played with it. Um, so okay, so they're cleaning up this murder. They're also going to couples therapy. In the meantime, Love finally meets Theo, who is visiting his dad from uh, on a break from attending Stanford, and he's like flirting with Love, and she's like, "Oh, I'm married and have a baby," but he's like, "I'm a feminist," <laughs> um, and she she's obviously attracted to him, and he's attracted to her. But at the beginning, it's just like kind of a a, uh, neutral or um, non-threatening relationship. Um, meanwhile, Joe is also looking for opportunities to make some money in the town, and so he befriends the librarian Marianne, um, who where he starts to steal books from the library, restore them, and sell them for money because he is supporting Ellie. So we never see Ellie. Um, she's a character from season two. Remember, if you don't remember, she is the sister. She was the sister of the landlord of the place where Joe lived um, and Love murdered her sister. So Joe, is. it's communicated to us that Joe has kind of been supporting Ellie because, you know, it was his fault that her sister's dead. Um, so that's, that's how Joe meets Marianne. Love and Joe eventually reconcile toward the end of the episode and, and promise each other that they're not going to commit any more murder. They're going to work together as a team uh, and work on their marriage instead of killing people they're jealous of. And uh, Love opens her new bakery, which she calls a fresh heart, which is very cute, very putty. Um, but we see that underneath the bakery in the basement, she and Joe have built the cage, the glass cage. Um, And they tell us that the reason they they give us the reason that Joe gives us in season 2 that they built the cage so that they could slow down. They could put people in the cage without having to immediately murder them. Um, And we also see that both Love and Joe hide a key somewhere in the cage because they have previously locked each other into this cage and both of them are demonstrating they don't trust each other by hiding this key, uh, their own keys in there in, in case they need to escape, which, again, I think I think is such a subtle but interesting way to show that although they are saying the right things, they are working on their relationship. They are saying to each other like, "I trust you. We're a team." Deep down underneath they know that they can't trust each other and they are looking for a way out and although this is a very extreme version of that right of like having a key, a spare key to the cage you built to put your murder victims in I think that there are people who get into relationships that do this that they have a way out no matter how what they are doing within the relationship so whether this means like um I, I've seen this be be in the case of people who like have their own savings account they keep their money separate so they always have something to fall back on if they need to go Um, maybe they don't want to move in together they don't want to join certain parts of their lives because then you always have um, an escape route right you don't have to fully trust your partner because you have a way out Um, and I would say, if Joe and Love's case, there's good reason for it because they've seen that what the other person has done for for love or for jealousy, um, and, and you know, so people who do this in more subtle, less murderous ways. Are doing it because of some precedent in their life, whether it's from early childhood or from previous relationships, where you learn that you can't necessarily trust people, um, and that it's easier to have an escape plan just in case uh, you need to get out or or do whatever has happened to you. But again, I think I think the show in season three is really stretching into um, how to make parallels between these very extreme sort of you know irrational or unlikely like unfathomable behaviors right like the murdering and the violence and and kind of com- the compulsive and obsession that um Joe and Love have Expan- taking those kind of extreme behaviors and mapping them onto things that we all do in our relationships right whether it's from the fatherhood thing or the having an escape route like they're they're mapping these things onto these these very like normal relationship patterns or or maybe not necessarily normal but but common right like M- multiple, many people have experienced these types of things. So, this ends episode two. Moving into episode three, people are starting to pay attention to Natalie's disappearance and to escape scrutiny. Joe and Love decide that they will just frame Matthew, her husband, for her murder because, as they say, the husband is always the one that is suspected to doing it. Um, however, As they are planning, plotting out how they're going to deal with this, um, Henry contracts the measles and has to go to the hospital. And this is where the anti-vaccine plot starts to pick up, is that we realize that Henry contracted measles from a party that the family attended in the neighborhood, um, and that there were children there who are not vaccinated against measles and had measles. So that's how Henry caught it, because he is too young to have been vaccinated. We also learn that Joe was never vaccinated due to his upbringing and and being dropped off at the group home. Um, And so Joe gets measles too. And so this leads us into our... um, episode where we see Joe hallucinating, right? So in season one, it was where he got hit in the head. Season two, it's when he is taking LSD. And season three, he is delirious from fever. He's trying to get over the fence to Matthew's house to frame him for Natalie's murder. But while he's delirious, he collapses. We also see in this episode... Joe was really flashing back to a lot of past memories about when he was chi- a child and this discussion of if he was vaccinated or not is really bringing up a lot of those memories um, but because he's hallucinating he's like putting himself in the memories he also hallucinates another version of Joe who's I think kind of represents the more like the aggressive um, more purpose driven part of Joe because Joe tends to present as a more like, weak-willed, very meek character, especially to other people. Um, so the the Joe, he is hallucinating, is kind of very take charge, and is more aggressive, and is like, we're going to go over there and frame Matthew. However, because Joe is, uh, like, feverish, he collapses, and Matthew finds him and nurses him back to health. And in this process, Joe ends up giving him advice to help him kind of get out of the scrutiny Of being accused for Natalie's murder and we also see that Joe takes pity on Matthew or can't bring himself to frame Matthew because of his shared identity with Matthew as father and because Matthew is a father he can't imagine doing anything bad to Matthew and this in this episode or this season Um, we see that Joe, because he has expanded his identities into husband and father, um, that gives him more ways to relate to other people. So he can relate to Matthew because they are both fathers. Whereas if he had not had a son or had a child, or even even if he was just married to love but wasn't necessarily a father yet or, or wasn't married, he would not be able to relate to Matthew and have sympathy or pity for him Um, and I've talked about this in the other seasons too where Joe seems only able to care about people that are directly connected to him either through his obsession with them and wanting to draw them into his life or through his identification with them because something in their life or in their presentation is similar to his life Like he sees himself in the children that he has cared for over the seasons and in this case he sees himself in Matthew uh, who he he kind of takes pity on and tells Love that they can't frame him for the murder because he's a father Um, and it's all you know they're all very they're hand wringing and although it appears as though Joe is changing and his heart has grown now that he has a baby I would argue that again this Change or the shift in behavior is superficial um, and is again just due to Joe seeing himself in someone else and not being able to see Matthew for who Matthew is. He can relate to Matthew because now he has something in common with Matthew, not because he sees Matthew as like a human being. Um, so, anyway, just again another theme that kind of runs through this and I think is important to keep reminding ourselves of because. The show, whether whether it's nefarious or not that they do this, is giving us more information about Joe in a way that makes him seem more sympathetic and is having his behavior shift so that he seems capable of change. But if you've been with me through the other two seasons and in the past episodes that I did on this, you'll see that it's, it's really not true, that Joe is not capable of changing particularly on his own right he's going to need help and some sort of intervention if he wants to change and a handful of couples counseling is is not going to change joe's behavior because that's not why they're there they're there as a couple they're they're not um they're not there to focus on joe um so even though again this even in the last season we saw joe going to therapy but he's not going to therapy in the case, in the Hopes of like changing anything, he's going to therapy to like continue stalking, or right, that's in the first season. Um, uh, okay, so anyway, they decide not to uh frame Matthew, they give him advice so that he can avoid the scrutiny of the neighborhood. Theo keeps flirting with Love, who is um trying to keep him at bay, um, although they they do bond over. Uh, Theo kind of comforting Love while Henry is sick and, and telling her more about his relationship with his stepdad. Um, and the end of the episode, we see Gil, the neighbor, come into the bakery to apologize to Love and tell her that he is the reason that Henry got measles because he and his wife did not vaccinate their children who had measles and, and brought it to the party. And Love becomes absolutely furious, and hits him in the back of the head with a rolling pin, knocking him unconscious before he can leave the bakery. So, I have to say that I found this assault or attempted murder to be very interesting um, because it's like... Love's kind of doing it in this, like, mama bear way where she's, like, feeling very protective of Henry because he almost died because he's so little and got the measles. Um And there is a... You know, the, she has an exchange with Gil where um he comes to apologize and she's like, oh, well, do you now see, like, why it's important to vaccinate your children? He's basically like, no, like, we still won't be vaccinating because why would we put poison in our child's body? Um... For no good reason and she's like well the good reason is that you almost killed my child and you could you know other people could die because you haven't vaccinated your child um and so that it's kind of like it's it's his glibness over what she is saying of like you did put my child's life in danger with your decision and he's very glib about it and he's he also doesn't seem to be able to acknowledge that the only reason he didn't get measles is because Gil is vaccinated. Gil is the only one out of his family that doesn't catch measles because he was vaccinated as a child. But he's not able to like put that together that the vaccine works and that he lived. Obviously, he wasn't poisoned as a child and died. Um, so I I, th- I thought this was honestly I kind of laughed when Love hit him hit Gil in the head because it was just like. I think there are people out there who are so tired of having this conversation and so tired of having to deal with this kind of glib comments, especially people who have have had to deal with the consequences of, of someone not being vaccinated for especially something like measles. That's Supposed to have been largely eradicated, um, so I think that scene is really a, a Schadenfreude for for people who've been dealing with this. Um, and I will point out that the sh- in the show it is acknowledged that COVID is a reality, and this is kind of like a post pandemic like timeline. And so, they mention the pandemic, um, and there are. Like references to things like people being inside or you know doing whatever, but we never see any of the characters wearing masks really, um, nor do we get any conversation about like the vac the COVID vaccine. So I think this is kind of the show's way of addressing the kind of national conversation about vaccines without making it too specific and kind of going back to um, an example of, of a vaccine that has worked, right? Like like the measles has largely been eradicated because of people's vaccinations. So I thought that was interesting to like put the world, in, in the world of the show, the pandemic has happened and people are living with COVID or post-COVID, um, but the vaccine conversation was not about COVID. It was about the measles. Um, because I think that's a more concrete example of the vaccines because it's, it's older. It's been, you know, so many people have taken the measles vaccine that it's kind of hard to make those arguments that we don't know what it does because generations have taken it. So I thought that was an interesting choice of the show to make and does make it a little more accessible across time because you can, you could watch the show like in later years and it not be so focused on COVID or like current events that it would be kind of like unrecognizable to future audiences. So that's the end of episode three. Moving into episode four, Joe and Love have put Gil in the plexiglass cage because they didn't kill him. Um, And they are trying to slow down and not be so impulsive. Um, So they realize that they can't let Gil out unless they have some sort of Information on him, so that they're kind of like blackmailing each other. Um, So Joe and Love start to dig into Gil's past, and Gil uh, Love uses her family's private investigator to discover that Gil's older son is actually. A uh, bit of a sexual predator, and assaulted a girl when he was in high school, and then has recently assaulted someone on a college camp, a, a girl on a college campus, and that um, Gil didn't know about the more recent assault. He had known about the one in high school, but his wife had covered up the second, more recent assault, so Gil had not known about it and had believed that his son had changed and that he had been able to help his son. Um, and so Gil, who is so distraught over this information and is left alone in the cage, um, ultimately hangs himself and dies by suicide within the cage. Um, now because Love and Joe are opportunistic in trying to find a way out of their own crimes, they realize that they can use Gil's death as a way to frame him for Natalie's murder. And so they write a fake suicide note and they put his fingerprints on um, the murder weapon and and basically frame him of having an affair with Natalie and then killing himself and her to cover it up. Um, And so... You know, I think again because this is this this is a this is a tragic story. Like Gil's story is very tragic, and even though he did not vaccinate his children, it does not mean that he deserves. First of all, to find out about his son's behavior in this way, nor does he deserve kind of the end that he came to. And I'm going to take the stance here that dying by suicide is not a selfish act, and is not necessarily something that somebody makes in their right mind and that if Gil had not been locked in a cage by Joe and Love and, that, and had been able to access support or access more resources, he might not have died in this way. He, he may have been able to get the support when he's in this um, state of mind. Um, and And so Joe and Love take advantage of a, a very vulnerable person who died partially in result of their actions and so Gil's death i think also highlights that even though they're using the cage to like slow down or not be so impulsive that um ultimately that the, the result is going to be the same right they like if you go in the cage you're probably going to end up dead um and that they are they they have like almost no qualms about the fact that this person has died by suicide, and they're they're just kind of rolling along with the plan. And again, I think it continues... This season, I think, really does a good job of highlighting that Joe and Love are really, really similar, and have the same way of thinking about things, the same way of like using people, like using tragedy for their own gain. But the two of them can't... Well, Joe can't seem to see that. Love is very aware of that they are the same, and are essentially a good match, but Joe just can't see that, and He kind of looks at love with disgust when she does these things, even though he does the exact same thing. So after all of this situation where they they frame Gil for Natalie's death, um, the episode kind of wraps up and we see that they get about six months of peace. The community buys the story and and seems to accept that it's believable that Gil and Natalie had this affair and, and Gil is responsible, um within the six months that pass by, Theo and love were growing closer, and so he kisses her, um, and then at the same time that Theo and love are, I guess, deepening their relationship or their entanglement, Joe is becoming more and more obsessed with Marianne, and we see that now that Natalie's gone, he still is not in love with love, so he's shifting his obsession to Marianne. Then we roll into the fifth episode, where we see that, um, Joe is being encouraged by Love and the therapist to make new friends, so he goes uh, on a trip with Carrie, so Sherry's husband, (laughs) of Sherry and Carrie, um, and and a group of, like, the other men in the neighborhood, and Joe um, kind of has this moment where he's told to kind of unleash some of his urges he ends up assaulting Carrie and knocking Carrie unconscious thinking that he killed Carrie dragging him back to the camp to the other men Um, and and Carrie is not dead and, and is revived and Joe gets kind of a validation in that of that he shouldn't keep his urges bottled up because bottling his urges up is what hurts people but that when he's able to let them out in a healthy way um, then people don't die, they just get knocked unconscious, which I don't know if that's the lesson that I would take away from this. And again, I firmly believe the only thing that's going to help Joe is professional intervention and help one on one therapy, maybe even medication, potentially, you know, other types of, of, of therapeutic interventions, but that just going out into the woods and yelling and fighting other men is not going to give Joe, what he needs, and he's not able to acknowledge his patterns when he is, you know, just yelling in the woods. So, while all of this plot is going on about Joe and his urges, um, we also see that Theo and Love are still continuing to have contact with each other. Theo had gone back to school, but would text Love um, when he was out drinking, and so she would order Ubers for him. And eventually, Joe does find the credit card statements and sees that. Um, and kind of confronts Love and sees that she's been paying for this this guy's Ubers. Um, Theo comes home for a visit and gets locked up in the police station after being... Uh, he was driving an electric scooter while it, <laughs> uh, drunk, so he's given a DUI <laughs> for driving the scooter. Love goes to pick him up and they end up having sex after... Um, you know, she comes to kind of rescue him, and uh, Love's mom realizes what happened, confronted Love, and Love agrees that she's going to um, kind of cut ties with Theo and not continue this. However, uh, because Joe has had this realization that he's got to let his urges out a little bit, he gives himself permission to lightly stalk Marianne um and let his urges out by just kind of following her around the town, keeping an eye on her. Um, instead of going instead of going all out like he normally does, um, he decides that he's going to let it out in little bursts. And so you see why I'm saying that this was not a good lesson for Joe to learn? Because he's not applying it the right way, right? Now, if Joe had gone out into the woods and been like, hey, I need to go out into the woods once a month and scream and wolf howl and fight men so that I don't stalk women... All right, maybe I'd give that to him. Of like, he's at least directing those urges into a different, albeit very much healthier route. Um, even if Joe was like, I need to get drunk once a month in the woods and you know, like, run around naked. Much healthier than stalking and killing women. But he applies the lesson as, oh well. I need to let my urges out by just doing half of my compulsive behavior instead of doing all of it. So I'll just stalk this woman instead of, uh, you know, like, stealing, breaking into her house and stealing her underwear because I'm letting out my urges. So that's that's Joe Joe applying the lessons he learned in the woods. And I, I again, want to make it clear that I do not like the character of Joe, but that doesn't mean that if you are a person like struggling with compulsive behavior or obsessive thoughts or, you know, struggling with these kind of relationship dynamics doesn't mean that you are a bad person and I really hope that you are able to find the help that you need and apply the help that you are getting to your life, Um, but that the character of Joe is explicitly written to be a bad, bad person and I want us to be very clear that the character of Joe Is not a character that we should think is romantic or that we should think is a good partner Um, and that unfortunately because of some audience reactions I think it is imperative because I'm saying this publicly to remind you and myself (laughs) that Joe is not uh, someone to idolize or or to you know want to be involved with in real life or you know the, the character of Joe so just you know bringing that up once again Rolling into the next episode, this is where we see that Joe can't just let his urges out a little bit because he's gathering so much information about Marianne. This is where he finds out that she is in recovery and in a custody battle with her ex husband. Um, he sees a difficult uh, conversation between Ryan and Marianne, or Marianne and her ex, and um, tries to intervene, but uh, Marianne tells him to leave her alone. However, Later, they have an experience where Joe comes to the library in the middle of the night to help Marianne with an emergency situation as the sprinkler system is going off and flooding the books, and while they're working together to kind of tidy up and, and keep all the books safe, they get to talking, and they kiss, and Joe is, of course, fully in. It, it was. It's been half an episode, and he's his whole plan to just like slightly be obsessed with her is out the window and he's all, all in Um, love is at a event that her mother is throwing and has been worried that she is pregnant with Theo's child um, and is kind of agonizing over it and, and, and feeling very sensitive about Forty's death um, because It's also, I I didn't mention this about the last episode, but it's made very clear that Love is drawn to Theo because he reminds her of 40 and he has some of the same issues. He's a very sad boy, just like 40 was a very sad boy. And Theo's struggling with alcohol and substances in the way that 40 did. And so it's hard to see if Love is caring for Theo because she cares for him or caring for Theo because he reminds her of 40. And there have been... These hints that Forty and Love maybe had a relationship that was too physically close. Um, and that so, you know, Love meeting Theo kind of gives her this this way to have that relationship with, with Forty that, that she wasn't able to have. Um, so anyway, she's at this event. She thinks she's pregnant, realizes she's not. So she gets absolutely wasted um, and begins to hallucinate about Forty. Which I thought was interesting that we get to see Love hallucinating. Love is, although we're not necessarily following her narration in the same way that we follow Joe's, she is getting more focus, more screen time, um, and so we get to see her have experiences that that Joe normally gets in all the seasons. So she hallucinates that Forty is with her, and it kind of helps her to grieve him. And move on, and she's able to kind of acknowledge that if she doesn't move on from the memory of 40, then then she's never going to get better. Um, although, spoiler alert, she doesn't really get better. Um, Theo, uh, meanwhile, is back home and realizes that his stepdad, Matthew, has been spying uh, on Madre Linda's residence to find Natalie's real killer, and he tells Love that his dad is, you know, kind of going crazy, and she and Joe make a plan that Love is going to keep flirting with Theo to keep him feeding her information so that they can make sure that Matthew doesn't know that they killed Natalie. Um, And in this episode, Joe is... We see a hint that Joe is on to her about her relationship with Theo, and... You know, kind of suspects that something is going on, but Love thinks that she's kind of masterminding this, and that Joe doesn't suspect. So again, we're seeing these hints that, although they appear to be, um, you know, going, being all in, they're on this. They say they're on the same team. They're keeping information from each other, and they have suspicions about each other. Right they're, they they know not to trust the other person fully, which you you can't build a strong relationship on that. I mean, not that. I'm saying love and show should be any example of a relationship you're pursuing, but it is difficult to build a relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or not, if you can't have a foundation of trust with that person. And so if if you are in that type of situation, um, I would encourage you to think about what are some of the things that prevent you from building trust with the other person or to kind of allowing them in and sharing information with them, you know, what's going on there? Is that a sign that you need to get out and that this is not the person for you? Or is it a sign that um, maybe there's some barriers you have up um, about the people in your life? And, and that, that's an area to, to investigate. But again... This is a podcast for entertainment and opinion, and so if this is something that you want to work on, um, I highly encourage you to do that under the care of a qualified mental health professional. Um, so anyway, <laughs> moving moving along to the next episode, um, we see that Marianne does have feelings for Joe, but she tells him like she can't pursue those because he's married, and she doesn't want to break up his marriage. And we see that Marianne is a generally like good person and you know, does not deserve Joe being obsessed with her. Um, of course, they can't stay away from each other, and Joe, you know, keeps coming back to Marianne and to, to try to get her um, to be on his team, <laughs> to be to be into him. Um, Love tries to have sex with Joe, who is now so obsessed with Marianne that he can't even bring himself to be intimate with Love. Um, and so when she is sort of Turn away from him. She has sex with Theo again. Um, in Love's case, we we see that her infidelity is pretty directly related to the like emotional disinterest or the disengagement she feels from from her husband, and that she seeks after Joe or she seeks after Theo when Joe is ignoring her. And again, I think this is a process that is quite common, and that for some people it's very difficult to deal with that disengagement in a relationship. And so instead of like dealing with it, they act out in a behavioral way, right? By maybe initiating an affair, an emotional affair, a physical affair or whatever. Um, and so, you know, again, it, I think it shows that there are common processes happening in this relationship. It's just these people aren't necessarily like common people, right? Because they are, are antisocial murderers, <laughs> Um but love, you know, Joe, Joe is not interested in what is going on with love because he, he has fully shifted his focus to Marianne. Um, Joe attempts to sabotage Marianne's ex husband's custody case by. Um, Sneaking drugs into his smoothies to get him to relapse because Marianne's ex is also a recovering uh, in recovery. Um, however, it's later revealed that her ex has been using the entire time, and there are always substances in his smoothies. And so, whatever Joe did did not affect um, did not affect the ex. Um, also in this event for for some reason there's a side plot where Sherry and Carrie approach love and or Sherry approaches love and tells her that she and her husband are interested in in opening up their relationship and being polyamorous with, with Love and Joe, that Sherry and Carrie are polyamorous and have done this before and they want to invite Joe and Love into this arrangement and love kind of latches on to this because she she's feeling like her marriage is not doing well. Um and she kind of gets Joe to agree to at least have this conversation about it. Um, meanwhile, so throughout, throughout the season, uh, Love's mother has been going through a divorce and she gets news that her husband will be, her ex-husband will be taking the grocery store that they own together from season two and the vineyard that she had bought in this season. So Love's mother, Dottie, gets very intoxicated. She kidnaps uh, Henry, because again, she's convinced that he's forty, and she goes to the b- vineyard and and burns it down so that her husband, uh, her ex-husband, can't can't get the property. Um, of course, Love and Joe are very upset with her because she endangered Henry's life. Love tells her that there's no way she's going to be allowed near Henry anymore, and the local judge tells her she has to go to rehab; otherwise, she's going to go to jail. So Joe is preparing to take Dottie to rehab, and while they're in the car, Dottie tells Joe that she suspects Love murdered her first husband, uh, James. So in season two, we found out that Love had been married before, and had a, had a hus- her husband had been diagnosed with cancer and eventually died, and it is assumed that he passed away from the cancer. However, Dottie is saying that she suspects that Love had something to do with it. Um, and so this is the last time we'll see Dottie because she's, you know, supposed to be in rehab kind of away from everyone and not um not allowed to see Henry ever again. Um so in her last uh I guess her last hurrah, she warns Joe um about what she suspects of love, and we come to see that it, it it's it's kind of assumed at least I assumed, maybe I'm not as astute a watcher, um, it's assumed that like Dottie doesn't know that love has these maybe murderous tendencies and love is is, is um tends to act out very violently. Um, but this in Dottie's last scene we see that she is aware and has suspected that love is capable of doing very dangerous things. Um, and so I think that's interesting that we never get full confirmation if Dottie knows like all of the people that love has killed and that if love she knows that it was love who killed the babysitter um in the beginning, you know, back in childhood. Um, but I think it kind of insinuates this, like mother's intuition, right? That like Dotty knows her daughter the best, uh, even though they have a contentious relationship, and she's kind of able to see these um, see these red flags. Um, so moving into the next episode, Joe agrees to um, attempt to have a sexual encounter with Carrie and Sherry, um, hoping that it'll generate enough conflict that he can. Or hoping that it will open up their marriage so that he can pursue Marianne without technically cheating on love. Um, There's also this plot where Marianne is going back to court for a custody battle. And her ex is doing a lot to sabotage the case. Um, And that he is like best friends with the judge. So there's like absolutely no way that Marianne is going to win this custody battle. Like her ex basically has the deck stacked against her. Um, through Joe's narration, we really, we, we hear him plotting that something has to happen to Ryan. Ryan has to be taken out because uh, Ryan, who, you know, Marianne's ex is kind of the last obstacle standing between Joe and Marianne being together and Marianne being happy. Um, so he's, we see that he's, he's plotting to kill (laughs) Mary Ann's ex. Like that, that's kind of where it's going to go. Um, meanwhile, Theo has broken into his dad's office and discovered this like surveillance of everyone. Um, he had already discovered it, but he, he breaks in and looks into it and sees, um, He's starting to look into it, but his dad catches him and tells him that he thinks love is involved in Natalie's disappearance, and so um, you know Theo is wanting to protect love because he is—he's you know, I would I would say that Theo is romantically obsessed with love. Um, it's not love; <laughs> he's not in love with love. He's romantically obsessed with her in the way that she's she becomes obsessed in the way that Joe becomes obsessed. Um, so up to this point. In the show, Love has been demonstrating that she's at least able to stay focused on one person. She seems to be, um, she's committed to Joe, even though she's been having like a dalliance with Theo. She keeps trying to end it and cut contact with him to focus on her relationship with Joe. Um, whereas you know Joe's not capable of doing that for her. You know, again, not saying they're like the paragon of relationship advice, but um, you know, I think it's just interesting that Love does seem to be a little more committed and a little more capable of. Um, Like, maintaining focus on one relationship. Then, um, the day of the polyamory happens. (laughs) Um, Joe, Love, Sherry, and Carrie are all over at the house. And um, they are, like, swabbing partners. And Love is watching Sherry have sex with Joe. And she realizes that Joe is... He has his eyes closed and is thinking about someone else that's not her or Sherry. She realizes because she knows him so well, she knows that he's moved on to a new woman to be obsessed with. And she freaks out and runs downstairs. They start having a fight and she starts screaming at him that she killed Natalie for him. Forgetting that there are people upstairs who are listening. Um, And as they go upstairs to check to see if Sherry and Carrie have heard her confession, um, they realize that they have... Carrie tries to run downstairs. Joe chases him and is able to knock him unconscious. Where Love knocks Sherry unconscious and they put him in the cage. And then they have sex afterwards and they realize that doing this like horrible, violent stuff is kind of the only thing that keeps them together and keeps them sexually interested in each other. Which is, you know, gross. <laughs> um, And I think there are ways to explore sexuality um, and like the edges of your sexuality without um, harming people, um, and, and Joe and Love don't quite seem to be able to uh, figure that out. Um, so they got Sherry and Carrie trapped in the cage. Uh, moving into the next episode, Joe is cleaning up the house because there's like blood and guts. Every- well, not guts, but there's blood everywhere because they assaulted these people and also like all these sex toys and things left over from the polyamory event. And Joe finds that Carrie had brought a gun so now there's a gun. Um, Joe also finds Marianne on the a brink of a uh, relapse so she's out sitting outside of a liquor store and she tells him that his ex got full custody and is moving to New Jersey and Joe tries to comfort her and in comforting her they have sex. <laughs> Meanwhile, Theo who is looking for love to tell her um, what he discovered and looking through his dad's footage because he discovered uh, footage of Joe putting Natalie's body into the back of her car, and he is running to find love to warn her, to let her know that um, he has this footage. and Basically, he wants to say that they could frame Joe and run away together. So he's in the bakery looking for her. He ends up going down into the basement and finding the cage where Sherry and Carrie are locked up. And he's trying to figure out how to um, let them out. He's looking for a key and he finds the key and is going back downstairs. And at the moment he's going back downstairs, Love enters the bakery and she finds him, realizes what he's doing, and uh, he tells her, like... I don't know. I don't know what this is about, but I think that Joe makes you do these bad things, and I have evidence against him. So, you know, you could get out of this relationship because he Theo has become convinced that love is in an abusive relationship with Joe, and that's the only reason she stays with him. So he's kind of trying to like rescue her. Um, so in his attempt to rescue her, he's like telling her, you know, run away with me. We can frame your husband. We can get out of here and start a life together. And love tells him. Like, she can't, she can't do it. Like, he's, he's got to go, that she loves him, but he's got to go, and as he's turning to leave, she hits him in the head and knocks him down the stairs, gravely injuring him. So, it looks like he's dead, or kind of led to believe that he's dead. Love thinks that he's dead, but he's not, because later in the next episode, Joe goes to kind of clean up the body. Um, at the behest of love and realizes that Theo is still alive and Joe actually helps Theo get out drops him off at the hospital um, because Joe is now fully intending to leave love for Marianne so that rolls us right into the 10th and last episode where, uh, oh, sorry I totally forgot the most important part of episode 9 is that um, Joe has killed Marianne's ex he goes to confront him at his apartment and ends up pushing him over out of the parking structure. He doesn't die, so Joe goes down and stabs him and has to frame it to look like a robbery. And this is where we see that Joe has tried, maybe not his hardest, but he has tried to control himself and he's not able to. And he, in a fit of rage, stabs this man until he is dead. And so there goes his like plan, his clean clinical plan to like do this without being discovered, um, and so he we see that he's scrambling. Joe is like desperate. He's desperate, desperate, desperate to. Um, Get all of the the um ends tied up um, so that he can be with Marianne and get away from love. So we roll into episode ten. Love d- figures out that it was Joe who killed Ryan Marianne's ex, and that the only reason Joe would kill the ex is so that he could be with Marianne. So love has figured it out. She poisons Joe. She like cooks his meal for him, she poisons him. Um, and we learn that. She did, in fact, kill her first husband because she was trying to give him a paralytic to make him um, difficult to, so that he couldn't move, so that she could make him stay and talk to her because he wanted a divorce. Um, But she gave him too much of the paralytic, so he died. So she has adjusted the dose and knows um, the right amount to give to Joe so that he is paralyzed and unable to move. And she tells him like he's going to sit there while she talks to him. She then lures Marianne to the house and brings Marianne into the house so that she can confront Marianne in front of Joe and we see that love fully intended to kill Marianne until Marianne's daughter comes into the room Um, and Marianne gives a very impassioned speech about why love should get away from Joe and kind kind of like gets what love is because love is telling her like joe's obsessed with you and marion is like i get it um and because her daughter's there love decides not to kill her but to tell her to like get out like get out of town run away so that joe can't find you um love then makes it clear that she is intending to kill joe she's coming over to him but we realize that He knew all along that she was going to poison him, so he had taken an antidote right before, so he wasn't fully paralyzed. So he's able to hit her with a plunger of the poison so that she does actually die. Um, And we see through a flashback that Joe was on to love several episodes ago, as that several episodes ago, love has been plotting to kill Joe, which again just reiterates this theme of like, neither one of them can fully trust each other even though they are the same and they truly are a perfect match uh, because they are so similar. They both, neither one of them could trust each other and the entire season we realized they have been monitoring each other's behaviors and always having a backup plan but in the end Joe ends up kind of coming out on top and having the most backup backup plan. Um, So after he um kills love he frames her for all of the murders including natalie and then joe sets their house on fire and drops henry off with a community member who um he worked with in the library so he basically is leaving henry behind and he cuts off his own toes to leave behind in the house as he burns it down so that there's enough human remains to make it credible that he's dead so he's faked his own death and also in this episode we get kind of the we've been getting flashbacks to Joe's childhood but we get the final flashback where we see that at one point uh, while he was at the group home he went to go find his mother and realizes that she has started over and has started a new family and has a new son um, and he confronts her and she tells him, she basically tells him like I couldn't help you. Um, you know, I like I, I just I couldn't give you what you needed. So that's why I, I took you to the group home. Um, and and it's interesting that he he's having this memory. As he's basically doing the same thing to Henry, but he feels justified in what he has done to Henry because he leaves him with a family rather than leaving Henry at like an institution and leaves a letter that um, Henry will be able to read when he is older. And sort of the last scene of the last episode, we reveal that Joe has escaped. He has moved to Paris, and he is searching for Marianne because she had absolutely disappeared off the grid, and he wasn't able to find her, but that they had had a conversation before where she had said she always wanted to just pick up and move to Paris, and so Joe has traveled to Paris in an attempt to find Marianne, and it's kind of insinuated that that's where season four will pick up with him kind of stalking a woman internationally (laughs) rather than just within a city. Um, and one of the last things I want to mention about the last episode is that as love is dying, the paralytic is running through her veins, her heart is stopping, she tells Joe that they were perfect for each other and she basically says what I've been saying throughout, right, that like, that they were they, they were so perfect for each other, they were truly the only people in the world that they could have understood one another, and Joe still doesn't get it, and he truly hates her to the very end and that we really see that for all of season three he has not loved love that she loved him the whole time or at least wanted to be in that marriage and he was only there out of a sense of obligation for his son but in the end he couldn't even make it work and ended up exactly repeating the pattern of his mother of abandoning his son because he couldn't handle it he couldn't handle um, what was needed, although in this case, Henry wasn't the murderer, Joe is. So that's season three in a nutshell. Oh, and of course, the kind of like last thing to wrap up is that Sherry and Carrie were in that cage uh, under the bakery, and Sherry, in a kind of a, a, a stroke of genius, uh, realizes that there is probably a key she notices that there's a lock on the inside. She realizes that the Joe and love don't trust each other. And so there's probably a key hidden in there somewhere. So she upends all of the baking supplies, finds the key and they are able to escape. And we see in kind of the final wrap up flashback that Carrie and Sherry turned their experience into like a book about couples uh, counseling and that they're giving a Ted talk on how being in that cage uh, saved their marriage. And so, you know, Joe narrates this final flashback where he's talking about what happened to them and he, 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 really looks at Sherry and Carrie with like, um, disdain. He sees them as, you know, very shallow people, not deserving of what they have. Um, and that they, you know, are making money off of this experience that happened to them because they're just like opportunistic, like horrible people. Um, but Honestly, and I think that's because that's Joe's interpretation of the world, right? Again, he's an unreliable narrator. We're only getting information through Joe's eyes, not through reality. But I honestly thought that Jerry and Carrie's relationship was the best relationship in the whole show, and that as we, we see them in the cage for a while, and they really go through a lot of these ups and downs, and they, uh, love gives them the gun because she wants them to murder-suicide each other. Um, and they do end up shooting each other accidentally, um, like kind of in their arguments, but they they really do we see them really break down and work through a lot of their relationship and we they have some very vulnerable conversations with each other that Joe and love would never have been able to have. And they're very honest with each other. Um, Carrie kind of admits that, you know, he he felt like he had to make himself into a better person to be with Sherry, and she she had to do the same thing. And they're really, I, I thought it was quite beautiful. You know, because they're like bleeding in, in their underwear. Um, <laughs> they've been shocked. and they were just coming from a foursome when they got locked into the cage. Um, but they really do kind of strip all of this down and are able to really have a very honest conversation about their relationship and kind of acknowledge where they're at and you know they fight and there's yelling and accusing but you know at the end of the day they were able to have that conversation and Sherry is able to kind of like fight through her fear and her panic to think through this problem and save her husband and and save her relationship and get back to her children because they they have children so I just wanted to say that, like, if you watch it, that's that's. I think they're my favorite relationship. I really, I really thought it was cool how they turned out. Um, but we only get to see them through Joe's eyes, and Joe can't stand them. And I think it's because he wouldn't be po- capable of having um, a relationship like Sherry and Carrie had. But to just wrap up, because I know that I'm going really long in this episode, but. I just feel like I had so much to say by the time I got to season three, especially as I reflect on what we could have talked about with season one and two. Um, I'm just gonna kind of wrap up with some last analysis and recurring themes that I noticed throughout the show. Um, so and I said this before. I-, I won't go into it a whole lot, um, but in every season we see Joe and a child. Season one we had Paco, two, we had Ellie in season three, um, it's his own child, Henry. that that he becomes kind of fixated on Um, and even though Henry is his own child he is kind of doing the same thing about protecting Henry from what had been done to Joe although interestingly enough ultimately Joe does to Henry what was done to him leaving him behind whereas the other children um, Joe didn't necessarily leave them behind like Paco and Ellie they both moved uh, they moved away from him because, because they needed to, you know, because of, like, new new circumstances. Um, but Joe, although desperate throughout the whole season to keep Henry from having the childhood that he had, and is one of the reasons why he kills Love is to kind of save Henry from, um, like, having to know, having a mother who was a murderer. Because, um, like, having, he, he, Joe kind of says that, like, Love being in jail for these murders Uh, wouldn't be good for Henry because, one, Joe would go down for the murders too and then Henry would have no parents Um, but that it would be easier for Henry if his mother was just dead Um, and he's raised in a different family so we see that Joe's doing the same thing about protecting a child but when it is his own child he ultimately does make the same decisions that his mother makes she gives him up because she can't take care of him because Joe... Has, has violent tendencies as a child and Joe gives up Henry because he can't take care of him because of Joe's own violent tendencies and kind of the consequences of those those actions um, also like I said we have the good woman versus bad woman um, trope where Joe becomes like obsessed with someone until they do something wrong um, with Natalie we never see that because love kills Natalie before she can become the bad woman to Joe so he he was still kind of in the good woman phase, and again with Marianne, he hasn't had enough time to focus on her to get to the point where she becomes she makes so many mistakes she becomes the bad woman. However, in this season, he does have kind of a revelation that the women he was chasing are related to his mother, like he has a flashback to Beck his mother and love like yelling at him all in the same way and he realizes like oh he is chasing after women who are like his mother and but then he rationalizes it by saying that Marianne is different she's a different type of woman she's not like his mother she's you know she's special um but i think we can all guess that in season 4 if Marianne is still the focus of his attention that eventually something will happen and that she becomes the bad woman, right? She makes too many mistakes for Joe. He's, he's, he's able to have a moment of insight in season three, but he really doesn't do anything about it. <laughs> um, we also, uh, in season three, have this idea of like, commitment and parenting, like committing to a relationship and becoming a parent. Um, is going to, like, make you a better person. And both Love and Joe have this idea, however, that obviously doesn't work. (laughs) Um, and And I think this is another one of those things that, again, this is a common belief. You probably have people in your life or have been in this situation where you have thought, if I just commit to this person, I take this relationship the next step, things will just get better as the nature of this commitment or if we have a child together and become parents we will just become better people by nature of becoming parents and it it's that's just not true there isn't anything like magical that happens when you become a parent or commit to someone i mean there are things that happen to you like physiologically and psychologically when you are in a relationship but it's not this like overpowering transformation it's just a piece of puzzle right it's just another piece of of your relationship and so I I also thought it was interesting that the more Joe became fixated on Marianne kind of the less we saw Henry in the show now I think part of that is just a function of how difficult it is, is to have a child on set and as Henry got older they needed an actual like child actor for him and not just like a baby doll <laughs> or like a baby crying sound um so i think that i think that's kind of a function of that but it also i think from a storytelling perspective we see that joe had been fixating a lot of his energy and compulsiveness and obsessive thoughts on henry on like being the best dad for henry being there for henry until Marianne, because with Natalie it didn't get very far, but until Marianne comes on the scene and he is fixated upon her and we see that he kind of has trouble holding both loves at the same time because Henry kind of disappears from his even his vocabulary for some of the later episodes where he's really getting uh, fixated on Marianne. So I, I thought that was interesting that you know he holds this belief and he's saying that he's doing all of this stuff for Henry like, all the way down to murdering love he does for Henry, um, but yet we see him not even mention his son for for several, for for stretches at a time, whereas before Marianne, he was um, more focused on Henry. And last but not least, I wanted to talk a little bit about this article I found about compulsive behaviors and trauma, and I thought this article was very interesting and does kind of relate to some of what we see in Season 3, particularly because Season 3 is trying to center a lot of Joe's actions in the context of his childhood trauma. Season two had started this trend, and season three is really expanding upon it. We're getting extended scenes of Joe as a child, seeing other important adult figures in his life, seeing how domestic violence impacted him as a child. Um, we're, we're getting a lot more of that context. I thought this article really made sense in the in the context of, of those flashbacks. So, this article was actually written by Bessel van der Kolk, who, if you are familiar with the work, um, the body holds the score. that that's Bessel van Bessel Vanderkok. He's a uh, pretty renowned psychiatrist who worked with trauma, he worked a lot with veterans who had PTSD, but he also worked with um, people who had experienced things like sexual trauma. Um, And he has some very good conceptualizations about how trauma is experienced in the body. So like physiologically and biologically, how does trauma impact systems and impact your brain to lead to outcomes um, later on in life long after the trauma has has passed. Um, and so this article in particular was about um, the compulsion to repeat the trauma and how people who are victims of trauma kind of reenact or re-victimize either themselves or the people in their lives. Um, and I, I think that, again, in the context of season three and all the childhood flashbacks we get, we can argue that Joe is reenacting a lot of his trauma from childhood, either to himself or to others, and he is unable to stop it, which is what I think makes it compulsive, right? Like I've said before, I'm drawing a line between Joe's obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors and what we would call OCD, and that these are just kind of characteristics of the way that Joe's behavior presents, um, whereas that is a a, a different disorder, which um, I can go into more detail in a more relevant piece of media. Um, but anyway, this this the compulsive piece of Joe, I think, is really kind of explained well by this article. So uh, Vander Kolk says that those who have had tri- childhood trauma experiences uh, hyperarousal. So this means that um, the arousal systems in the body um, go off quickly and tend to be a higher reaction than those who have not experienced hyperarousal and when experiencing hyperarousal people are going to seek behaviors to reduce that feeling um we don't like to be aroused and when I say aroused I don't just mean sexually aroused I mean like arousal is things like your heart going faster getting sweaty, muscles getting tense, like this can happen when you're anxious, when you're about to get into a fight, um, even when you're excited. Like Those are all states of arousal, and our body and our brain don't really like to be aroused for a long period of time. So your brain will seek out ways to soothe the arousal, to kind of bring you back down to baseline. Um, In this article, he outlines a lot of behaviors, but says that for some people, these behaviors can include things like gambling or substance use, uh, substance use, because those behaviors produce neurological agents such as endogenous opioids or oxytocin which soothe the arousal and uh, operate as like reward systems within the brain. And if you've ever heard of oxytocin, it's sometimes called like the cuddle drug or the cuddle hormone. It is released um, if, a lot of the times during physical touch um, like between romantic partners, between um, really anyone. Any any type of physical touch that is comforting and consensual <laughs> um, can produce oxytocin. And that helps to soothe the arousal, but because it is inherently a rewarding experience for the b- brain, it rewards the behavior and then becomes a cycle. So the next time I become aroused, I'm more likely to do this behavior and uh, because it soothed me and it also sent signals to my brain to say, this was good, do it again. So I'm more likely to do it again the next time. Vanderkoek also says that for people exposed to trauma, those behaviors... Um, may sometimes include re-exposure to trauma, either as a victim or as a perpetrator. So when experiencing hyperarousal, let's just say, for example, that someone experienced um, violence as a child. So maybe like physical abuse from a caregiver, like being hit um, or more so than just like, not not spanking, but like being hit and abused. Um, So so that they have that violence in their childhood experience. As an adult, they experience a situation where they're hyper-aroused, let's say in a, in a conflict with their partner where emotions are getting high, maybe they're getting angry, and those symptoms of, or those um, side effects of arousal are happening, increased heart rate, sweaty, muscles constricting. In order for the brain to bring the arousal back down, the brain is going to seek out behaviors that in the past have um, kind of given those neurological agents I was talking about, and unfortunately, because the person's childhood experience was violence, violence has been connected um, to those agents. So let's say the person acts out in violence toward uh, their partner. So they really reenact the trauma as a perpetrator, right? By victimizing someone else, they are given the the hyperarousal is reduced through the biological and physiological processes, and it's therefore rewarded, right? So now it's more likely to become a pattern the next time. In the case of reenacting as a victim, perhaps this person who's experiencing hyperarousal, who has violence done to them in the past, seeks out a partner who they, they have seen react violently to conflict. So they know getting into a conflict with this partner will elicit violence, which does the same thing of producing these neurological agents, which soothe arousal. To be clear, In general, people who have not had trauma, like all of us, um, when we feel high arousal, we seek out behaviors that are familiar. So when you, let's say you haven't had trauma in your background, um, a familiar, like, soothing behavior may be something like getting a hug from a loved one, laying down on your bed, like, you know, maybe being wrapped in a soft blanket, drinking a glass of water, like, those behaviors can be um, just as a soothing to someone's arousal system if there's no trauma in their background. And the person's arousal may not get that high if you haven't don't have trauma in your background. So, However, someone who has trauma in their background, their arousal may get even higher, so they need even more extreme things to soothe the hyperarousal. And I think this also helps to explain for us why Marianne has such a difficult time staying away from Joe, um, because like I was saying, these these opioid and oxytocin pathways are kind of involved in this um, process, and as a person who is in recovery, Marianne may be more likely to have... Less sensitive dopamine and oxytocin pathways because they have been impacted by substances. It's not clear all the substances that she used. It is hinted that she potentially had issues with alcohol use, but there could be other things. Um, And a lot of these substances, especially stimulants, um, kind of uh, latch onto the dopamine pathways or dopamine receptors in the brain. And so it means that the natural dopamine in your brain has to be a lot more. There has to be a lot more of it for you to get the effect um, in the future. Um, And so for Marianne, this like very powerful oxytocin and dopamine release from this like illicit affair with Joe um, and this physical contact with him may be more soothing than other ways of getting dopamine for her because of the impact to her like natural um, dopamine pathways, and so and I think that helps to explain it in a better way than to just say like Marianne likes toxic men or like she can't pick a good man. You know what I mean? Like putting the blame on her. I think it gives us an understanding of of how one could get stuck in this pathway or in this 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 cycle because of Um, the biological and physiological consequences of trauma and we also know that Marianne has a a history of childhood trauma she grew up in foster homes and group homes much like Joe and so it is entirely possible that not only did her substance use impact her neural pathways so that she reacts more strongly to physical touch or, or needs more Uh, needs more like risky uh, physical touch to soothe that hyperarousal, but she also had been predisposed to it in childhood because of the trauma she experienced, and that may have been why she contributed to why she started using substances, because she needed something more powerful to soothe her hyperarousal than what her brain could naturally make, and so introducing a substance that could substitute that um, was kind of uh, became rewarding, right, kind of latched into this cycle. So that's um, a very brief summary of Bessel van der uh, ideas about, about compulsive behavior and how it's like this compulsion to continue to repeat these same patterns and, and to you know, how we're like biologically and neurologically pulled into um, reenacting or re-victimizing ourselves or others. Um, And so with that, that leads us to the end. This has been a very long episode, so I appreciate if you've listened all the way to the end um, and for sticking with me through a multi-part series. I had a lot of fun with this, and I think going season by season is a lot easier for me to break things down. So in the future when I do TV shows, um, I'll probably do them more in this format where I address them by season, unless they're I don't know, really short, <laughs> and they can be talked about as a whole, um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you again for sticking with me through all these episodes, kicking off the new year strong. Um, in this new year, I did want to just mention that now if you listen to the podcast on Spotify, you are able to rate the pod um, to give it five stars or whatever you think it deserves, um, so I'd really appreciate it if you could Uh, drop a review or a rating um, on Spotify now if you listen anywhere else there as well would be appreciated and I did want to say a shout out to my international listeners Um, my Numbers have been growing in other countries. And I just want to say thank you for listening because this is, I think, I tend to be very American centric. um, So I hope that you're still getting entertainment out of this um, and enjoying uh, some of the conversations that I am centering in my own experience as an American. Um, But I just wanted to say a big shout out to the international listeners. Thank you for sticking with it. Um, And with that, I'm going to leave it here and I will see you in the next episode. Bye bye to see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes to contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com please rate and review on apple podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts thank you and see you in the next episode